Regular listeners to this podcast will know that there's a recurring series called Spotlight. In the Spotlight episodes, I go into my nuclear archives and dig out old issues of Protect and Survive Monthly. This was a British magazine published in the early 80s, all about nuclear war and civil defence, although much of its content was adverts. Ads for domestic shelters and ration packs and dosimeters, etc. But each issue had a page called Spotlight, which was a roundup of all the nuclear war news from around Britain. And in the Spotlight episodes, I choose an issue and we have fun, I hope, going through the snippets of nuclear news to see what was troubling the Protect and Survive Monthly guys in the early 80s. Well, this week I chose the December 1981 issue, and one of the snippets I found in the Spotlight bit was so interesting that it ballooned and became an episode in its own right. So we're going to devote ourselves to one piece from December 1981's Spotlight, and if you want to hear the rest of them from that month, I will put it together this week as a bonus episode on Patreon. And there you will hear about other nuke news stories like Sweden's civil defence alert, are Soviets using gas in Afghanistan, new home office booklet, and more. <laughs> but the snippet of nuclear news which we're going to do a so-called deep dive on in this episode is the piece entitled Protect and Survive Monthly Attacked in BBC Nuclear War Lecture. So I instantly went looking for more info on this controversial lecture and found, to my delight, that the entire thing is on YouTube. It is linked to in the show notes if you want to watch it, or just search YouTube where you'll find it under 4 Minutes to Midnight, 1981 BBC Bronowski Lecture. Before we begin, what were the BBC's Bronowski Lectures? They were an annual series of lectures in memory of the scientist Dr Jacob Bronowski, who is probably most well known to the general public for presenting the mammoth BBC series The Ascent of Man. This lecture, the 1981 Bronowski Lecture, was delivered by Dr Nicholas Humphrey, a neuropsychologist who was also a prominent anti-nuclear activist. And it is uh, fascinating because it's not your typical anti-nuclear lecture. Instead of talking about the dangers of relying on deterrence, etc., it asks why we don't protest more. Why are we not standing up and screaming about the threat of nuclear war? And he approaches the topic not as an expert on war or deterrence or weapons, but as a neuropsychologist. A neuropsychologist asking, why don't we scream? Now, before we take a good look at the lecture, my position on nuclear disarmament is, I'm sorry to say, that it's hopeless. It cannot happen. It's not realistic. But at the same time, I recognise that my personality is a dark one. I have bouts of depression and panic attacks, so it almost seems natural, perhaps, that my position of one of hopelessness. So I was interested to listen to this lecture and see if I could be persuaded otherwise. Perhaps a coherent, sensible neuropsychologist can change my mind instead of some 
duffel-coated CND activist. <laughs> now wait, don't get annoyed at me. I deliberately chose the insulting image there of a 1960s CND activist because that is something Dr Humphrey discusses in the lecture. How we might use mockery to belittle those who speak of nuclear disarmament. It's a way of swiping the whole terrible subject away, wiping it from our minds. Oh, those nutters, those obsessives, those peaceniks. It's easier to do that than to engage, isn't it? Okay, so let's begin. What are his arguments on nuclear disarmament? Can he change my mind? Can he change yours? But then stop, because approaching this as a contest is surely wrong. That's the modern social media-tainted way of thinking of it. Can Dr Humphrey win this argument? Can he get a mic-drop moment? It doesn't have to be either or. It doesn't have to be persuasion or ridicule, acceptance or rejection, friends or enemies. Let's try and wind it back to 1981 when there was no social media and let's just listen to his debate and, well, maybe you won't change your mind. Maybe he won't win. Maybe you're on his side already, of course. But that's it's enough to, to listen to him and perhaps nudge a little towards him on one issue and maybe shuffle further away on another. Let's pick up his arguments, turn them over in our heads and maybe put them gently back down saying, no thank you sir, but I'm glad to have listened to you and my mind feels a bit beefier, a bit wider, a bit more open for having listened. I don't desire nuclear disarmament because I think it is unrealistic and because, as things stand, it would weaken us. I believe that nuclear deterrence has worked, although I do recognise that it has only worked because luck has, thus far, been on our side. But I'm slightly ashamed of holding that opinion. I feel that it's a grubby opinion. I hold it reluctantly. I would love to be pure and clean and certain in my arguments and be a fully paid up member of CND and want all nuclear weapons wiped to the face of the earth. But I just can't persuade myself that it's as simple as that. So as I say, I hold my opinion reluctantly. But maybe it's a good thing to be a bit shaky in some opinions because the implication there is that you are open to persuasion and debate. Certainty in all things must be dangerous. And that is where this lecture starts off. It begins with a short clip from Dr. Bronowski's Ascent of Man series, where he visits Auschwitz, where many of his relatives were murdered. He says it is wrong to think that science will strip us all of our humanity and reduce us to numbers. Look at the death camps, he says. This is where people were turned into numbers. Here's a clip. It's said that science will dehumanise people and turn them into numbers. 
that's false, tragically false. Look for yourself. This is the concentration camp and crematorium at Auschwitz. This is where people were turned into numbers. Into this pond were flushed the ashes of some four million people. And that was not done by gas. It was done by arrogance. It was done by dogma. It was done by ignorance. When people believe that they have absolute knowledge with no test in reality, this is how they behave. This is what men do when they aspire to the knowledge of gods. We then cut back to the studio in London, where the chairman of the BBC introduces the speaker, Dr Humphrey, and says, and I think a lot of us listening would agree, that he will be talking on the most serious subject of all for mankind. Dr Humphrey begins with a reference to the Doomsday Clock, which had been set that year, 1981, to four minutes to midnight. I assume most listeners will know what the Doomsday Clock is, but if not, it's a symbolic clock which sits on the cover of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. And every so often, these experts gather to discuss how close we are to nuclear war. Midnight on the clock represents nuclear war. And they make a statement every few years on whether we are moving nearer to midnight or further back. Recently, they've begun including climate change in their assessment of how close we are to midnight, which I don't like. Stick to the nuclear threat, I think. Don't muddy the water with other threats. If you go to the website of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, you can see how the clock has changed since it was first introduced in 1947. Back then, they judged that we were a nice, comfortable seven minutes to midnight. We surged forward in 1949 to three minutes, things getting more dangerous then because the Soviets had got the bomb. We moved closer still, two minutes to midnight in 1953, and the scientist's statement that year said, the hands of the clock of doom have moved again. Only a few more swings of the pendulum, and from Moscow to Chicago, Atomic explosions will strike midnight for Western civilization. We had moved closer in 1953, they judged, because the Soviets had now, like America, developed the hydrogen bomb. The scientists said, This means that the time, dreaded by scientists since 1945, when each major nation will hold the power of destroying, at will, the urban civilization of any other nation is close at hand. But by 1963, we were laughing. The scientists put the hands back, way back, to 12 minutes to midnight because of the partial test ban treaty. And it surged forward and fell back throughout the Cold War. They currently have us at a tiny 100 seconds to midnight. And that's what they've judged us to be since 2020. As I say, I don't like this. The doomsday clock has lost much of its meaning as they now assess other threats, such as climate change and pandemics. But in this episode, we're talking about 1981, 
when the doomsday clock was solely about assessing the nuclear threat and it placed us at a nail-biting four minutes to midnight. And that was a nasty surge forward as we'd previously been judged to be at seven minutes. Let's look at the reasoning behind it. The 1981 statement from the scientists lists their reasons for us being closer to nuclear war. One was the seeming failure of the second phase of the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. But they also spoke of the rise of nuclear weapons which seemed to be not so much about deterrence as about fighting a nuclear war. These new missiles had greater accuracy and mobility. And the scientists said that that implies that we're accepting the notion of counterforce first strike by both sides. Now, the strategy of counterforce sounds decent on the surface. I'm putting decent in quotation marks. Because counterforce means that the enemies will seek to only attack one another's forces. In theory, you avoid the cities, you avoid the women and children. But apart from the fact that it would be difficult to neatly and cleanly only hit silos and airbases without harming civilians, counterforce might allow nuclear war to come creeping closer to reality. Because instead of saying, okay lads, this thing is unthinkable, this can never happen, this would be apocalyptic, you might have voices which would trick and soothe and cajole the politicians towards it by suggesting it would allow for a clean and surgical nuclear attack. So, nukes of improved accuracy could, conversely, be just as dangerous as the big sloppy whoppers which would take us all out. The scientist's statement ends with saying that there is some cause for hope and they point to a growing public concern over the drift towards nuclear disaster. Quote, Our immediate task is to find means of taking hold of this concern and converting it into an international accord to eliminate the threat of global nuclear suicide. And that takes us neatly into the subject of Dr Humphrey's BBC lecture. He asks, why don't we protest more about this? Why don't we scream? Why are the majority so indifferent to what the BBC chairman in his introduction called the most important issue facing mankind? Are we simply unaware of the dangers, he asks? Or do we think that Adding more and more nukes to the stockpile will make us safer. Here's a clip from the lecture. And please excuse the banging sounds, they are from the studio and they don't last long. Perhaps there's an obvious answer, which is that we're simply unaware. Is it possible that we either don't know or else discount the dangers of the arms race? That we think the bonfire which is being built, built around us will never catch light? Indeed, that the larger it comes, the safer, the safer it becomes. When I was a child, we had an old pet tortoise we called Ajax. One autumn, Ajax, looking for a winter home, crawled unnoticed into the pile of wood and bracken my father was making for Guy Fawkes Day. 
As days passed and more and more pieces of tinder were added to the pile, Ajax must have felt more and more secure. Every day he was getting greater protection from the frost and rain. On November the 5th, Bonfire and Tortoise were reduced to ashes. Are there some of us who still believe that the piling up of weapon upon weapon adds to our security, that the dangers are nothing compared to the assurance they provide? Yes, there are some of us. And it's hardly surprising that there are, for those in authority do very little of anything to inform us of the dangers. We don't hear the British Prime Minister talking about the world being, being on the brink of the final abyss. We don't hear the Defence Secretary talking about the nuclear arms race as being clearly without logic. The Director General of the BBC protects television audiences from seeing the film The War Game because he calculates, quite rightly, that people would find it alarming and distressing. So he's suggesting that we're being shielded from the reality of nuclear war, its risks and its effects. And as an example, he gives the BBC's treatment of the war game. If you've read my book, Attack Warning Red, you'll know all about the scandal of the war game. In brief, the BBC commissioned a drama documentary in the 60s about nuclear war. And it was powerful and bleak and frightening. And it made clear that civil defence would be futile. The Home Office, who were at that time in charge of civil defence, were displeased. And the understanding is that they placed terrible pressure on the BBC to ditch the film. And the BBC did that. And they used the excuse that it would just be too alarming for us. We would panic if we saw this thing. There would be suicides. People wouldn't be able to tell that it was a fake documentary. Think of the children. Think of the old people. And so the truth was hidden from us. Likewise with our politicians, Dr Humphrey says. No one in government was going to stand up and speak bluntly of the nuclear threat. No, the word from government was always that the British nuclear deterrent keeps us safe. It's right there in the wording, deterrent. Don't think of it as it really is. Nuclear missiles, nuclear bombs, nuclear weapons. It is a nuclear deterrent. That's how they've always presented it to us. So are we unaware? Well, he tells us, recent opinion polls show that half of the adult population expect nuclear war in their lifetime. And very few believe the position that you can protect yourself and survive a nuclear war. So whilst the hard and gruesome truth of a nuclear attack might have been shielded from us, we could hardly claim in 1981 to be unaware of the threat. Never in recent times, not since the plagues and famines of the Middle Ages, can so many people of this country have had such a pessimistic vision of the future. But does this pessimism stir them into action? When questioned on behalf of the magazine New Society, 70% of the public said that they were worried about nuclear weapons, but 9 out of 10 of this 70% stated either that nothing could be done or else that they themselves were unwilling to do anything. And even for the one in ten who said they might do something, the actions mentioned would seem to be totally incommensurate 
with the perceived dangers. They'd go on a march. They'd write a letter to the newspapers. It's as though we've become passive, fascinated spectators of the slowly unfolding nuclear tragedy. But, and here's the thing which troubles Dr Humphrey, even though we are aware and afraid and pessimistic about our chances, we don't do much to prevent it happening. And why not? That's his question, why not? Maybe, he wonders, it's because it's natural to think that such a terrible thing couldn't actually happen. How could such a horror intrude into real life in the 20th century when we're all so advanced and healthy and civilised? But, he reminds us, absolute horrors do happen and people have gone along with it, quietly, without protests and screams and fuss and noise. He gives three examples, all horrific and all from our supposedly civilised 20th century. The first and the most obvious is the, the Holocaust, the Nazi extermination camps. Think of the Jews who boarded the trains, he says, and who did it without screaming and kicking and fighting. Think of the mass execution at Babi Yar in Ukraine, where the victims queued up and filed slowly towards the pit to be shot. Think of the Stalinist purges, where week after week people saw their comrades disappear, shot in basements, and they simply waited for their turn. Why did so many go quietly to such a terrible fate, he wonders? Well, maybe it's easier for the victim to accept and comply if they think their fate is inevitable, if they are outnumbered and helpless. But he quotes the widow of Osip Mandelstam, a Russian poet sent to a prison camp where he died. She argues it is better to scream. In her brave memoir of the purges, Hope Against Hope, Nadezhda Mandelstam, widow of the poet Osip Mandelstam, describes how with disbelief she watched first her friends and finally her husband go the way of all the others. Later, she writes, Later, I often wondered whether it's right to scream when you're being beaten and trampled underfoot. I decided it is better to scream. This pitiful sound is a concentrated expression of the last vestige of human dignity. By his screams, a man asserts his right to live, sends a message to the outside world demanding help and calling for resistance. If nothing else is left, one must scream. Silence is the real crime against humanity. So why don't we all scream, he asks, when faced with the reality of the nuclear threat? He has four theories. The first is incomprehension and denial. Now, he can forgive us the incomprehension part, as nuclear weapons are incomprehensible. Think of Hiroshima, where people were reduced to shadows on the wall. Isn't that incomprehensible? Or turn to John Hersey's famous book, 
called Hiroshima. And there are two particular images which have stayed with me from that book. One is a group of soldiers who were huddled together in a bush, all of whom had empty eye sockets as they were looking up when the bomb exploded in the sky. And think of the woman who is being helped up out of the river, and when the man reaches to grab her hands, he says his skin on her arms simply slipped off like two long satin evening gloves. Now those are images of absolute horror. And then of course, the number of deaths in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they are numbers of such immensity that we can't possibly grasp them as meaningful. It's simply beyond our understanding. It almost slips past the mind. Dr Humphrey tells a story of the Aborigines first sighting Captain Cook as an example of a horror which is just so crazy, so outlandish, so beyond what we know that you don't accept it. Here's a clip. When Captain Cook's great ship, the Endeavour, sailed 200 years ago into Botany Bay, the Australian Aborigines who were fishing off the shore showed no reaction. The ship, I quote from Joseph Banks's Journal of the Voyage, the ship passed within a quarter of a mile of them, and yet they scarce lifted their eyes from their employment, expressed neither surprise nor concern. In the experience of these people, nothing so monstrous had ever been seen upon the surface of the waters, and now it seems they couldn't see it when it came. But theirs was a selective blindness. Cook put down his rowing boats. Now the natives were alarmed. Now they looked to their defences. Blind to the greater but incomprehensible terror, they reacted quick enough to a threat which came within their ken. So perhaps then we have a, a selective blindness, as he calls it, to something which is just too weird, too hideous, too outside our normal experience. So it seems Dr Humphrey can forgive us our incomprehension. But what about denial? He says that when we encounter something which is so awful, we censor its access to our subconscious. I know that from listening to true crime podcasts that this often features something will just vanish from a witness's memory. The trauma is just so great that it simply disappears. It's like the mind is trying to protect you. Or maybe it's wishful thinking, Dr Humphrey suggests, or a kind of optimism. The mind comes in like a strict teacher and says, no, 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 we'll have nothing of that sort here. He says if we allowed nuclear war in, properly into our minds, it would take away the meaning from the rest of our life. He says it would finish us off as a creative and productive people. And I'm sorry to lower the tone here, but that reminded me of a sketch from the Scottish comedy show Burniston, where a singer is doing a gig in a local pub, and he suddenly stops, he, he stumbles over his words, he gasps, his eyes widen, he's sweating. The audience start whispering, what's up with him, what's up with him? 
But then he smiles and he shrugs it off and resumes his song. He tells the audience with a twinkle in his eyes, Sorry, I just remembered about death there for a second. So I think that's what Dr. Humphrey is saying here. We have to push it aside or we would just lie on the floor crying. Denial lets us live and lets us flourish. So he says we have to make a choice. It's either nuclear war or having babies and writing books and tending flowers and travel and music and art. It's one or the other. And if you choose a life of babies and creativity and flowers, then the other thoughts of nuclear war has to go. But of course it's not as easy as that. Here's Dr Humphrey again. Human beings strive for consistency in their affairs. They can't, at least they can't for long, hold incompatible beliefs. Either it seems we look to the right of the picture or else the left. Either we believe the world is threatened by extinction or else we don't. How can we at one and the same time declare ourselves for human rights, devote ourselves to our children, labour to produce lasting works of art and scholarship, and take seriously a vision of the future in which there are no children, in which our books will never be read, and our paintings, our houses, our flower gardens will end as dust. One or the other vision has to go. Let's not be deceived. The dangers will not be diminished because we close our eyes to them. If we can't carry on as normal under the shadow of the bomb, then for the time being, we have a duty not to carry on as normal. We live at a time when to deny the prospect of death may well cost us our lives. His second theory as to why we don't scream is perhaps a very British one. Social embarrassment. It is simply not done to speak the unwelcome truth. When you're out for drinks with friends or at a nice dinner, no one wants to hear about soldiers with empty eye sockets. And to demonstrate this, he talks of the harsh treatment often given to anti-nuclear protesters. At worst, they could be imprisoned or have their mental health questioned. But at the other end of the spectrum, they can be mocked and ridiculed, made the butt of jokes. Oh, those lefties, those pacifists, those defeatists, those lentil munchers, those duffel coat wearing do-gooders. Why don't they just go and live in Russia? He argues it might be okay for bishops and actors and writers to make big speeches about nuclear weapons and write passionate letters to the newspapers because it's okay for people like that to make exhibitions of themselves. We expect it of them. But us ordinary folk? Oh dear, the embarrassment, the ridicule if you take on this topic. And speaking of embarrassment, he also mentions the fear of making the gesture. Talking about it, being brave. Say you're at the dinner party or the social club and you finally make the leap and you put your drink down and say, no, I will talk about this. I will lay all the horror out on the table. 
Well, what then? You've got everyone's attention. You have your audience wrapped, horrified, frightened, resentful. You've taken a big step here. You've done it. But then what? Consider the embarrassment of just going home after all of that for a cup of cocoa and then bed. If we're going to alarm people, we'd better alarm them to some purpose. We'd better offer a solution to the problem. And what's more, we'd better show by our example that we ourselves are actively pursuing it. We can't simply knock on our neighbor's door and say, the world is standing on the edge of the final abyss. I thought you'd like to know. If we ourselves don't have a solution, or if we're not prepared to dedicate our lives to finding one, then it's not only other people, but our own consciences that'll tell us to shut up. There's no honor whatever in being a helpless prophet, all dressed up with protest and nowhere to go. Okay, I don't think I suffer too much from the embarrassment thing. I'll talk about nuclear war to anyone who'll listen. But I can certainly understand his next theory. Helplessness. I said at the start of this episode that I feel that we are trapped, we're stuck with the bomb. Because we can't put our gun down whilst Russia is pointing theirs at us. And even if we did all miraculously agree to disarm, the knowledge of how to build the bomb is still out there. Someone else could do it and then hold us all to ransom. So yes, I think we're trapped. But Dr Humphrey says such arguments are covers for helplessness, not reasons for it. He speaks of two types of helplessness. There is learned helplessness, where we come to feel through experience and reality that we have no agency, that we cannot change things, that we are stuck. But he also speaks of superstitious helplessness. And that's a helplessness which has no basis in experience or reality, but instead is formed through a belief that we are set on a path and cannot change it. He says we behave at times as though we've been hexed by the bomb, put under a spell. Here's a clip. Earlier, I cited the statistics from a New Society poll. Nine out of ten people worried by nuclear weapons declared that there is nothing they can do. Nothing but sink in spirits and prepare to die. We behave at times as though we've been hexed by the bomb, put under a spell. A superstitious belief in the bomb as an engine of fate over which human beings have no control has obvious origins in the human imagination. The bomb is patently a superhuman weapon, mind-blowingly destructive, and if we so see it, mind-blowingly magnificent. Small wonder if people's fear is mixed with awe if they become hypnotized by its dread beauty and its fascinating power. He gives probably the ultimate example of this sense of quasi-religious enchantment with the bomb when he talks of Oppenheimer's famous reaction to it, where he, of course, quotes from a Sanskrit text which mentions the splendour of the Mighty One. 
And of course, Oppenheimer named his test Trinity, which means three-personed God. So the stage was set from the very birth of the nuclear age to see this thing as something magnificent and unearthly and overwhelming. And what can one little person do against the splendour of the mighty one? How do we combat that? Should we stop being in awe of the bomb? Stop speaking of its massive power, its terror? Strip it back to being just a bomb, just a weapon, just something made in a lab? Well, no, I've argued against that a million times in this podcast. Because that kind of approach was called, in the 50s, conventionalisation. And it was used to try and calm and soothe people's worries about nuclear weapons. It was a way to muffle the reality of nuclear weapons. So I think we need to see it as something monstrous and awesome. I think we should be terrified by it, in the hope that the nuclear taboo continues to hold. But, of course, I can see what Dr Humphrey is saying here. That approach comes with a big side order of helplessness. Speaking of the the religious style language which often accompanies the bomb, he turns here to our old friend Protect and Survive Monthly, the magazine from the early 80s. He says that such people often see the nuclear holocaust as a cleansing ritual. I suppose he's referring to what we now call preppers, people who almost look forward to it as a chance to clear out all the dead wood and start again. A chance for renewal. Now he scarcely mentions the magazine here, and I rather think that they were delighted to be given a brief mention on the BBC, and so they made much of it. Instead, this section about the weird belief that nuclear war would permit renewal and rebirth actually quotes from an NHS document. That's where the majority of this section uh, comes from. I'll play that clip for you in full here because it's quite chilling. This is our NHS likening the mass slaughter of the population to a forest being destroyed. But as long as the the great trees are saved, then it can regrow. I'll read. No, you won't be allowed to because it's a confidential document. But read, if you could, the contingency war plan of one of our regional health authorities. In its way, a nation is like a forest, and the aim of war planning is to secure survival of the great trees. If all the great trees and much of the brushwood are felled, a forest may not regenerate for centuries. If a sufficient number of the great trees is left, however, if felling is to some extent selective and controlled, recovery is swift. There will remain brushwood enough if 30 million survivors can be so described. The planning policy is clearly elitist. The author of this official document wasn't, I think, directly quoting Nietzsche, the the philosopher who inspired the Nazis, but he might have been. Examine, Nietzsche wrote, examine the lives of the best and most fruitful men and peoples and ask yourselves whether a tree, if it's to grow proudly into the sky, can do without bad weather and storms. 
His final theory as to why we don't scream and protest is what he calls strange love syndrome. He suggests that there are some amongst us, or maybe even a part in all of us, which thrills to the idea of nuclear destruction. It would be quite a show, wouldn't it? It would be spectacular. It would be incredible. It would be the biggest thing that had ever happened. And we marvel at the genius of those who created the bomb. And we gasp and we wince and we shudder at photos of nuclear tests. But he says when we indulge in this kind of thinking, this marvelling at the bomb, we forget to slot ourselves into it. He likens us to a person who has written a suicide note. They kill themselves, but in the writing of the note, they stand apart from the death and they imagine afterwards their loved one finding it and reading it and pondering it. But at that point, the writer of the note will have ceased to exist. The person who wrote the note will be detached from the chaos and the grief and the horror. So if we're going to marvel at photos of nuclear explosions, and I've done that, then we need to put ourselves there on the desert floor or on the rusty ship when the bomb goes off. We need to stop marvelling from afar and imagine ourselves as one of the huddled soldiers with those empty eye sockets. So what is the solution? He ends his lecture urging us to not forget the power that we hold as individuals. He talks of the abolition of the slave trade. In Britain, the movement was sparked by revulsion at what was happening. Same with Vietnam, the angry protests in America. And the solidarity movement in Poland. These were all massive changes brought about by people being angry, raising their voice, making themselves heard. He reminds us that we can shout and protest and we can ditch the politicians who might be driving us towards disaster. Here's a clip. We forget sometimes our own power. In this country, every penny spent on armaments is money we subscribe. Every acre of grass behind every barbed wire fence round every bomber base is an acre of our land. And every decision taken by every minister of state is a decision made on our behalf by a representative elected to our service. If those we entrust to manage our affairs adopt strange policies, if they turn out in office to be double agents, one hand to pat our babies, the other raised in salute to the bomb, then we have the right and the duty to dismiss them as unfit. His lecture was brilliant and gives us so much to think about. But as he was approaching it as a psychologist and not as a military strategist or weapons expert, then it means he didn't tackle the problem which always snares me. 
How do we put our gun down when the other side is still brandishing theirs? And the only answer to that is one I found years ago in a religious pamphlet in the Scottish CND archive. Annoyingly, no cameras were allowed in the archive, so I couldn't scan it and show it to you. But the gist of it was that the human race needs to do a bit more evolving before we can achieve nuclear disarmament. It spoke of horrors from the past, like slavery and cannibalism. Things that we once practiced, but are now, mainly, disgusted by. We need to grow and evolve, the pamphlet said, to the point where war similarly disgusts us. We need to become so civilised and enlightened that we can go, wow, in the old days, those brutes used to settle differences by chucking bombs at each other. Can you believe it? Bunch of savages. But we are far, far, far away from that point. And so, even though Dr Humphrey has given me such a lot to think about, he hasn't turned me into an anti-nuclear activist. I still feel hopeless. But thanks to his excellent lecture, I can at least have a bit more insight into the hopelessness and embarrassment and denial and, yes, the tiny little bit of marvel and thrill that's involved in nuclear war. So please do seek the lecture out. It's on YouTube. Uh, The link to it is in the show notes for this episode. So a longer um, episode than usual because there was so much to talk about. I hope you've enjoyed it. Let me thank my new patrons who've signed up this week to support the podcast. Mark, Hugh Claydon and Kat Ford. Thank you to all three of you. They get access to extra podcast episodes. So if you want to join them, and support my work, please look at patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo. And I'll be back next week with another episode.